Hello there. Thanks for listening to the Elevate Christian Church podcast. We exist as a church to connect people with God and each other. Today's message comes to us from our lead minister and preacher, Kevin Barton. We hope this inspires you, grows you, and challenges you in your faith and your walk with Jesus. Enjoy! We're starting a brand new series today entitled Beauty and the Feast. Now I'm just going to tell you right out from the gate, I love myself a good feast. I like to eat. Uh, And we are in this country about to enter into a time of multiple feasts. There's a lot of feasting going on. We call them the holidays. We've got Thanksgiving coming up in a couple of weeks, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot of friends and family and food, a lot of feasting going on at your house or our other houses that you may visit. And then just a month after that, we've got Christmas. Christmas Eve, you usually have a dinner. Christmas Day, you usually have a feast and a dinner. Some of you, uh, you've got four or five dinners to go to. Go to the in-laws and to the step-parents and, you know, your parents are divorced. And so it's like a four or five day of nothing but feast, 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 feast for you. And a lot of people have New Year's Eve parties, and there's all kinds of finger foods and pizza, and there's a big feast there. And then, uh, of course, you've got New Year's Day. A lot of people get together for, for those dinners and have a feast. And we are about to be in that season. And so as I was developing this series, I was thinking about all the eating that's going to happen. I always look forward to that. And I was thinking about the foods that are served on, on holidays, the traditional menus. So I want you to think about that for a minute. Uh, And I realize there's some variables here with the side dishes, Uh, but think about Thanksgiving dinner. I love Thanksgiving dinner because it has turkey. I mean, that's the centerpiece of the Thanksgiving dinner. Turkey, dressing, mashed potatoes and gravy, deviled eggs, green beans, corn, rolls, cranberry sauce, and pumpkin pie. Okay, and then Think about Christmas. Think about Christmas dinner. You've got the Christmas ham. and So you've got this Christmas ham and sweet potatoes and green beans and mashed potatoes and dinner rolls and all, all types of Christmas baked goods and cookies and eggnog. And then you've got the traditional, at least here in the South where we live, the traditional New Year's Day dinner, which is some kind of pork, collard greens, black-eyed peas, and cornbread. And so I, I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about which, which of those three dinners I would prefer the most, and, and I want you to think about that. It, it, do you like the Thanksgiving dinner, or the Christmas dinner, or the New Year's Day dinner the most? And so in just a second, I'm going to ask you to do something, uh, just a little participation, just by sheer volume of applause or whatever. Uh, I want to try to determine what the, our favorite dinner day is during this feasting time. Okay, those of you who are watching online, I would love for you to participate. You can just type in your comments uh, there as we go. So let's go. How many of you, by applause, prefer the Thanksgiving dinner? All right. My people. All right. How many of you prefer the Christmas dinner? Okay. All right. And then last but not least, the New Year's Day dinner. All right. Black-eyed peas and cornbread and collard greens aren't your thing, huh? So it sounds like, to me, that Thanksgiving won. During our 9 o'clock service, that, that was the, 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 the one that won as well. My personal favorite, if you even care, is Thanksgiving. It's my favorite day of the year. 
I love Thanksgiving because it causes me to be thankful for my family, my friends, my church, my community. I just, I, I love Thanksgiving Day. That's my vote, Thanksgiving dinner. You know, there's just something good about food, family, and friends that can just lift a person's spirit. Last month, I had to do something incredibly difficult. I, I went to Virginia, and I had to, to do a funeral for my, my grandmother, who was very integral in my Christian walk and my, and my life. Uh, if a person can pray someone into salvation, which I know they can't, she did pretty close, because I was a wayward, wayward young man, and, and her and my grandfather just poured into me. And so it was incredibly difficult to go to Virginia and, and actually preach her funeral. Well, I decided when I would, went up there that I was going to stay a week. I don't usually stay that long. I like my own bed, my own shower. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm gonna get, the older I get, the more that appeals to me to stay at home. Um, so I decided I was going to stay there for a week. And every night I was there, uh, my parents, I brought my boys with me. Uh, they came with me. And then my sister and her husband and her family, they came down every night to my parents' house, my other sister who's still in her 20s, uh, she's single, kind of the wayward, not wayward in a bad way, but just kind of a free-spirited, her name's Lauren, she came over from her, part, from her townhouse, and every night we just ate as a family. It's been a long time since we'd all been together like that. And, and after we ate, we just talked and reminisced and we laughed, and my parents live less than a mile from a Dunkin' Donuts which is absolutely dangerous for me. Uh, and so every night after we eat dinner, we'd be laughing and talking. I'd be like, all right, donut run. I would take orders. I'd go get donuts and coffee and come back. And, and, and we, my dad goes to bed at like 7.30 for some reason, but he stayed up every night till like 10 or 11. It was just a very festive time. It was a really, really cool week. Feasting combines three things that I love a lot. Food family, and friends. And so as I said, we're going to start this new series today entitled Beauty and the Feast. And we are going to spend seven, count them, seven weeks in Leviticus chapter 23. Everyone's like, yay, that's my favorite book in the Bible, Leviticus. It's all those laws that, that God uh, dictates to Moses. We're going to spend seven weeks in Leviticus chapter 23, and we're going to examine the seven feasts of Israel. They're also called the seven Mosaic feasts. We're going to tackle uh, one each week. Now, I realize that we just came off of, of a pretty intense series uh, called Angels and Demons. It was a very engaging series. Uh, there, there was a lot of a lot of conversation, people seem to, to really enjoy it, and so we are up here on a sermon high, and then some of you are like, you're following that with Leviticus chapter 23, these old archaic feasts of, of Israel? At first, the seven feasts of Israel may seem like something that Christians don't need to worry about. I mean, after all, we're not Jewish, but I want to submit to you, there is so much beauty in these feasts, they demonstrate for us the holiness of God, the sinfulness of humanity, and they look ahead to the successful sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so with that in mind, uh, let's go, you might have to blow some dust off of those pages, let's go to Leviticus chapter 23. It's a, it's a, it's a book we don't spend a lot of time in. 
And where we're going to land today in Leviticus chapter 23, God is dictating his law to Moses. He, he says, write this down. Okay, and in this particular portion, God is instructing Moses specifically about how his people should rest, how they should slow down, about feasting and spending time together and celebrating and remembering. So let's jump in Leviticus 23. We'll pick up in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, There are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. Six days shall work be done. But on the seventh day is the Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall not do work. It is the Sabbath to the Lord and all of your dwelling places. Okay. So before God gets into these holidays, these feasts, God's saying, listen, uh, you don't just rest during the holidays, during these highlighted feasts. In fact, I want you to get into a six-in-one rhythm. Six days you work, six days you run errands, six days you labor. But on the seventh day, whatever that day is for you, it should look markably different. On that day, you should rest your bodies. On that day, for some of you who work in middle to upper management, you're always dealing with people, it may be a day to rest your mind. If you own a farm, it's a day to rest your animals. It's this six-in-one rhythm. It's a day that looks different than the other six. No errands to run, no rushing around, just resting in the Lord. Well, then in verse 4, He's going to get into the crux of where we're going to be for seven weeks. He's going to talk about these seven feasts that they're to observe. Verse 4, there are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the time uh, appointed for them. These seven feasts are feasts that the Jewish calendar actually revolves around. Now, what's interesting, when you look at verse 4, the, the Hebrew word for feast means appointed times. In other words, God is going to give Moses and the people of Israel specific days in specific months of, and specific times of the year to have these feasts. We have that in America, right? We like Easter, Fourth of July, Thanksgiving, Christmas. We all get together, congregate, have these feasts. The other interesting thing about this verse is the word convocation there. That means a calling together of people, having more people around your table than you normally have. And, and we see that happen during the holidays every year. So essentially he's saying, listen, on these days, in these months, during these times, assemble people together, have a feast, eat and celebrate. And while, you're, while you are doing that, remember the past. Remember why we're having these feasts. Remember that I'm your God. Remember what I did for you in the past. Remember how I rescued you. But also during these feasts, look to the future. Don't just remember what I have done for you in the past. Remember what I'm going to do for you in the future. And then God jumps right into the calendar. So, I'm paraphrasing here, but he's basically saying, Moses, get your day planner out. I'm going to give you some dates and some feasts. Um, 
I use a day planner still, a paper day planner. I know that's stone age, uh, but my smartphone is smarter than me, so I just feel better using a day planner. But I want you to understand there's beauty that are wrapped up inside of these feasts. Each of the seven feasts that we're going to mention have both historical significance to the children of Israel, but they also have prophetic significance to us, the new children of Abraham. In other words, we find beauty in these feasts because of the reminders of the past, but also the victories promised in the future. And these feasts are all very beautiful because even though they're in the Old Testament, before Christ incarnate, before Christ was born, Christ is in the center of every single one of these seven feasts. So let's look at the first one. It's the one that we're all probably the most familiar with. It's called Passover. Verse 5, in the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. Now, I know you've seen the movie The Prince of Egypt, so you know all about the Passover, but I want to I talk about the, the historical significance of Passover, and then I want to look at the prophetic significance uh, uh, that, that we the Israelites didn't know about when they were doing these feasts. Passover was and is today a feast. It's an appointed time to call together people to celebrate a specific subject. Do you know what that subject is? Salvation. We celebrate salvation during the Passover. If you know the history of Passover, uh, Passover began during one of the darkest times in the nation of Israel. They had found themselves enslaved to the Egyptian people. They had been slaves for decades after decades after decades. They were being mistreated. God said, I am going to free you. You're going to go into the land flowing with milk and honey. You're going to be your own nation. I'm going to be your God. But there was one problem. They had a leader in Egypt named Pharaoh who wouldn't let God's people go. And so if you remember the, the story in Exodus, God begins to send the, the ten plagues, right? Like turning all the water into blood, the frogs, the flies, the hail, the, the locusts, the darkness, etc. All nine of those plagues, Pharaoh would not relent. He would not let God's people go. And God said, all right, I'm going to send one final plague on that country in Egypt that have, that have enslaved my people. It's going to be the death of every firstborn in every household. Exodus 11, 4 through 6. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and the firstborn of all the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor will ever be again. I just want you to, to picture this and imagine for a minute if we had some type of plague like that that, that came across our country. In one night, every, every household lost their firstborn child. They, 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 they died. Can you imagine the devastation that, that we would feel as a nation well, this was a devastating plague, the death of the firstborn. However, 
God is going to save his people from having to endure this plague. And here's what he tells them to do. He says, each household, go get a lamb that's without blemish, without spot. I want you to sacrifice that lamb, which is cutting the throat, letting it bleed out. Take blood and put on the doorpost of your homes. Put across the top of your, of, of your door. And when the death angel comes to destroy the firstborn children of both man and beast, that angel will see the blood across your doorway and he will pass over your house. God's judgment won't be rendered on you. You will be spared. Your children will be spared. You will be safe. See, you have this innocent lamb dying, shedding its blood, and God rescuing his people. And God says after it happens, hey, make this a yearly feast, a day in which you and generations after you remember what I did for my people. And there's beauty in the memory of that story. But I think the true beauty of the story is the prophecy we find in the Passover lamb. The beauty in the story is that Jesus would become our Passover lamb. Now, he wouldn't become a Passover lamb. He is the Passover lamb. He was without spot or blemish. Sin didn't stain him. His blood would be smeared on the beams of the cross, and that blood would be applied to the doorway of our hearts, and that would cause God to look at us and pass over his holy judgment on us because we are declared clean and righteousness only through blood sacrifice. And that's why when John the Baptist sees Jesus in John 1.29, he says this, the next day he, John, saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's a propitiation. He's the sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, the latter part of that verse, he says, For Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. You see, Jesus is the Passover Lamb. Lamb, And because of that, I get to enjoy freedom. I get to enjoy life. I get to have peace of mind for the present and hope for the future because God has passed over me with all of my sin because I am clothed with the blood of Jesus Christ. And here's the crazy thing about it. We don't even have to provide the lamb like the Israelites did. I don't own a lamb. I have two dogs. Two cats that I reluctantly let live in my house and a hamster. I don't, have, I don't own a lamb. But Jesus himself is going to provide the sacrifice for us. Hebrews 9.22 Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Let me make a point that I think we often overlook in the church, okay? And I, and I want you to hear this. It wasn't when the Passover lamb died that the children of Israel were safe. It was only when the blood was applied to their doorpost that salvation came. And so it is not enough to know that Jesus died for our sins, 
We are not saved until the blood of Jesus is applied to our hearts. Because there's power in that blood. There's an old hymn my grandfather used to sing. It's called, There's Power in the Blood. How many of you remember that, the old school song? I'm going to read some, some of the words to you. Would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the blood. Power in the blood. Would you or evil a victory win? There's wonderful power in the blood. And you remember that chorus, right? There's power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. There's power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. I remember being a teenager and my church would, would do a Sunday night singspiration where you just pick songs and someone would pick that song and the song leader would sing it normal and then he would go real fast. You remember that? There's power, 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 power. I wonder how many remember that? Anybody? Okay, yeah, we, we used to do that all the time. It's a scriptural precedent. When the blood of Jesus is applied to our lives, our sins are forgotten, our souls are purified, we have the power of forgiveness, and we can only have that power of forgiveness through the shedding of the blood on the cross of Jesus Christ, the Holy Lamb of God. And that's why Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. In Romans 5, 9 we read, Since therefore we have now been justified by what? His blood. Much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. God's going to pass over us. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Remember that you were at once time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Jesus Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Romans chapter 3, verses 24 and 25, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is Christ Jesus, in whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That was to show God's righteousness because of his divine forbearance. He passed over our former sins. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways you inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The great evangelist John Wesley preached one night and he was returning home from church and he was accosted by a thief. Wesley didn't have a whole lot of money, but he gave him what he had and the thief started to run away and John Wesley said, stop, I've got something else to give you. Well, as you can imagine, that surprised the thief. He turned around and John Wesley said, my friend, you may live to regret this sort of life and if you ever do, here's something to remember. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all our sin. The thief hurried away and Wesley prayed that his words might one day bear fruit. Well, several years later, Wesley was greeting people after preaching on a Sunday morning service and he was approached by a stranger. And he was surprised to learn that this visitor was now a believer in Christ and a successful businessman. He was the one that had robbed Wesley years before. 
And he told John Wesley, hey, I owe all this to you. Oh, no, you don't, my friend, said Wesley. You don't owe anything to me but to the precious blood of Christ that cleanses us from all of our sin. You see, he was just echoing what the beloved apostle John said in 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all of our sin. See, there's beauty in this Passover feast that we sometimes miss. Do you guys know what feast was going on when Jesus entered, to, entered into Jerusalem to be sacrificed? This feast, the Passover feast. He rode into Jerusalem like a lamb being led to the slaughter. And he knew it. And God knew it. And he did it willingly. You might be interested to find that worship looked way different back then than it does now. Now it's civilized, right? We're all, we all put deodorant on. We all combed our hair. We all kind of look nice, um, you know, clean, sleek. But worship was bloody back then. And during this Passover season in Jerusalem, people would bring lambs to the temple to be sacrificed. Here's what's interesting. The, the historian Josephus says during that first century there, uh, when Jesus was there, that there was approximately, during that Passover season, every year, 250,000 lambs that had to be killed at the temple at Passover. Man, that's a lot of bloodshed in the temple. In fact, some historians say by the time the sacrifices were over, the priests were standing knee-deep in blood. There was blood everywhere. Archaeologists have discovered that in Herod's temple, there was a drainage system. In other words, there was a plug. And there was a place after all the sacrificing was over for that blood to go and to drain out of the temple. And they usually did that with a, in the evening time around what they called 3 p.m., and the temple would need cleansing. They'd pull that plug. They'd take barrels of water. And they'd wash that blood out of the temple. Jewish fathers would take their sons and watch the blood coming out of the temple and explain to them uh, the innocence of the Passover lamb and this blood and water kind of flowing out of the temple. But I want you to think about this. Not on that particular day. Do you remember what happened from noon to 3 o'clock while Jesus hung on the cross? Mark chapter 15, verse 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until 3 in the afternoon. We know that when Jesus was crucified, not only did darkness come across the land, the earth shook, the temple was rattled, the, the veil was torn, and so everybody was kind of in pandemonium. There were no lambs being sacrificed. It was dark. There was an earthquake. What is going on? And if a father would take his son to watch the blood and water flow out of the temple, there was no blood and water from the Passover lambs flowing out of the temple. But something else happened at 3 p.m. on that very day. John 19, 33 and 34. But when they came to Jesus and they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once, 
there came out blood and water. See, this was God saying, you don't need a Passover lamb. I just sent you the Passover lamb. And his sin or his blood will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. There's no need to come back here year after year with a lamb because the ultimate lamb, the unstoppable lamb, the unchangeable lamb, Jesus Christ was slain and his blood cleanses us from all our unrighteousness. He is the Passover lamb. You see the beauty in that feast? Indeed, his blood does cleanse us. It frees us from the bondage of sin. We have hope and we have life because this was the perfect sacrifice. A lamb without spot and blemish, without sin and stain. Perfect sacrifice. My question for you this morning is this. I know you know about the blood of Jesus, but have you applied it to the doorpost of your hearts? Have you repented of your sins? Have you confessed that, yeah, Jesus is Lord? Have you followed his example to be buried in baptism? And are you producing fruit for the kingdom of God? Because Jesus is the great overcomer. Many of you may have heard of the Scientist slash physician Louis Pasteur, uh, very, very knowledgeable in the fields of germs and disease. But you may not have heard of his partner, Dr., and I'm going to butcher his pronunciation, Dr. Felix Rue. He was a Jewish doctor that was a contemporary of Louis Pasteur, and Dr. Rue had a granddaughter who died of the, the dreaded black diphtheria. And he vowed he was going to find out what killed her and he was going to stop it. And so he began to lock himself in his laboratory for days. And him and Louis Pasteur would, would theorize the germ theory of disease. Well, it made the people in Paris uncomfortable. And they disapproved. And they were exiled out of the city of Paris. But they hid in a forest near Paris. And they erected a laboratory for this forbidden research. Once the laboratory was built, they had 20 beautiful, healthy horses that were led into the forest to this improvised laboratory. Scientists and doctors and nurses came to watch an experiment. Dr. Rue opened a steel vault, and inside the vault was a pail filled with the black diphtheria germs. It's been said that there were enough germs in that pail to kill, the entire, to, to kill everybody in the nation of France. Well, then the scientists went to each horse and swabbed its nostrils, its tongue, its throats, its eyes with the deadly germs. Every horse except one developed a terrible fever and died. Well, most of the doctors and the nurses and the scientists were discouraged and they didn't remain because they thought it's just a matter of time and this 20th horse will die. And for several more days, this horse lingered lying pathetically on the ground. And why Dr. Rue and Louis Pasteur and others were sleeping on cots, they had an orderly, and they told him, hey, if the temperature changes in this horse any, any way, if it goes down any way, wake us up. Well, at 2 a.m. one night, the, te the horse's temperature dropped a half a degree. The doctors were woken up. 
By the time the sun had come up, the temperature had dropped two more degrees. By the time the afternoon was there, the, the fever had left the horse. It was entirely gone. And by that evening, the horse was able to stand and eat and drink. It had defeated black diphtheria. Then Dr. Rood did the unthinkable. He took a sledgehammer and struck that beautiful horse with a death blow between its eyes. And scientists drew blood from the veins of that animal that had developed black diphtheria and overcome it. And they drove as fast as they could to the Paris Municipal Hospital. They forced their way past the superintendent and past the guards. And they went into a ward where 300 babies lay, segregated from the population because these babies all had black diphtheria and they just basically laid them in there to die. And with the blood of that horse, they inoculated every one of those 300 babies. All but three recovered completely. The blood of an overcomer saved them. And friends, Jesus is our great overcomer. And the blood, his blood is capable of saving everybody in this room, everybody in this world. But he had to die to bring life to others. That's why the prophet Isaiah wrote about him in Isaiah, Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. The New Testament says, He that knew no sin became sin on our behalf. And that blood that rolled down that cross and onto that ground... It's the same blood that we apply to the doorpost of our spiritual hearts. And we are pronounced clean. And God doesn't look at us with all our shortcomings, all of our hurts, habits, hang-ups, sins. He looks at us and he sees that Jesus' blood has been applied to us, the ultimate Passover lamb, and we are saved. You see, there is power in the blood. Nothing can wash away our sins except the blood of our perfect Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. We hope you enjoyed listening to our podcast today. If you'd like to learn more about Elevate or partner with us in what God is doing here, check out our website at elevatecc.com. Until next time, God bless you and thanks again.